This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, all you happy warriors, eager devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all the many social pathologies that it generates. When I promise to reveal how the world really works, it is in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans in history who possess neither Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would almost be welcome. Those hideous hermaphrodites running our media, our educational systems, our government bureaucracies, all of them who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women, but oh, what damage they manage to inflict. Never fear. Here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, we can transform timidity to triumph. We will replace diffidence with determination. And we'll displace the divided counsels of doubt with the hard eyes and the firm hearts of those who know where they are going and are going there. We strive for success first with our families, and then our finances and our friends, after which we will be ready to take on the formidable task of saving our frighteningly fragile civilization from those who would force us to surrender our freedoms and our souls to the whims and to the dictates of those who think themselves to be our superiors, our elites, our betters, our bosses, our rulers. Yes, well, I'm not running for office, but uh, but those, 
Those words really do express my heartfelt sentiments about uh, our confrontation with the forces of secular fundamentalism and modern materialism that really have dramatically reshaped our country in the last 50 or 60 years. They're, needless to say, they're, they're doing the same to uh, Western Europe, and it would appear that it's almost as if they have a calculated plan to harm and perhaps even destroy Western civilization. And the only question really is, you know, who are they? Because if there had been a dark conspiracy fomented in the middle of the night in some unknown cellar lit by candlelight where the plotters gathered and the conspiracy was contrived, all of that, and yet had that happened, could they have possibly come up with a better way to hurt America than what they've done in the last 60 years? Don't you think that if you would have been in that mythical cellar, in that hidden meeting place, concealed from the eyes of decent men, had you been there in, shall we say, 1962, and um, sat down with other conspirators with the intention of a 60-year plan to damage America, which, by the way, has been severely disrupted by the appointment of Donald Trump, which is why they are fighting so relentlessly and with such insane fervor to try and undermine, to do anything at all possible to neutralize this development, which would appear to be standing astride the rails of revolutionary history and preventing them from doing what they're planning on doing. Now, look, right now, I am, of course, I'm, I'm pretending, if you like, that there was such a meeting in 1962, a date chosen fairly arbitrarily, I'm pretending that there was such a meeting, and what I'm asking is, what are some of the things they could have decided to do at that meeting? What are the things that uh, that the last history, the, la the passage of the last 60 years has shown us that, yes, they were right on all of these things? So, it's all, it's all mythical. Uh, I don't for a moment think that there really was such a group. That naturally, I know, that leaves me with a problem of explaining how could all of these things happen or have happened uh, without any calculated plan? How is it possible that these things happen, what, by accident, one after the other? And I, I think I'm going to be able to 
um, explain that the answer is neither random coincidence or accident, neither is it conspiracy on the part of anybody, any group of people determined to harm the United States of America. So uh, if you were in that conspiracy group, that hypothetical conspiracy group a number of years ago, um, what might have been some of the strategies that you would have recommended to your fellow co-conspirators um, whose stated goal was to try and bring America to its knees, uh, try and obliterate America's power in the world and its influence and its role. Uh, what, what are some of the things you might have done? Well, don't you think that you might have decided to uh, imperil the educational system? What, what, what would you have done? Well, and again, I'm working on this. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of reverse engineering it, if you know what I mean. Uh, I'm taking ancient Jewish wisdom and I'm saying, okay, uh, what does ancient Jewish wisdom say is necessary for the uh, vitality and health and durability of a society and of a culture? Um, and the answer is, one of the answers is uh, from the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Or in, in Hebrew, if you're interested, um, it reads, Nidmu ami mibli hadat. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And so I'd say, okay, great. Clearly, one of the things I need to do is um, is is very definitely I got to I've got to damage the educational system. Clearly, right? Got to damage the educational system. How do I do that? Well, what we 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 could look at is the strategy that was employed to reduce, deliberately reduce literacy. Now, uh, this is, this is, <laughs> this is going to sound weird to some of you. It really will. Um, it's, it's, you're going to say to yourself, it's impossible that people in charge of education ever could have made decisions like this. But they did. Yes, they did. Um, so one of the key people who played a role in this um, was uh, a guy called Professor John Dewey. Now, admittedly, he lived a little before our hypothetical uh, conspiracy meeting in 1962. Um, he was actually active at the turn of the century. And uh, it was right, it was just before 1900 that he published a very important essay which became enormously influential and, by the way, still to this day shapes the view of the new teachers that are being put out every year by the educational colleges and the teacher training schools. It was an essay he published called The Primary Education Fetish. And uh, he writes... Um, uh, there is a false educational god, and uh, 
and who, whose idolaters are legion and whose cult influences the entire educational system. This is language study. In other words, literacy. It's almost unquestioned that a child's first three years of school life shall be mainly taken up with learning to read and write his own language. If we add to this learning uh, also a certain amount of numerical combinations, in other words, fancy word for arithmetic, um, we have the pivot about which primary education swings. Yes, that's right. Reading and writing and arithmetic. He's quite right. That is the pivot around which primary education used to revolve, and shouldn't it? After all, I mean, right at the outset, you've got to give your children the ability to communicate um, effectively and eloquently, so you teach them English to read and to write, and you also teach them basic uh, numerical literacy. You start off with arithmetic. But John Dewey then devotes the rest of his essay to explaining why this is a very bad idea. This is not something that we want to do. We've got to stop doing this. And uh, I'm, I'm, I, I should have highlighted parts of the essay that I wanted to read to you, but it's just all, all of it is so indicting and, uh, and, and really rather shocking. Uh, and he says it's a big shame that the three R's have been um, retained in spite of all the changes in modern conditions, he writes. And in other words, bottom line is what he says is that um, the, uh, there's a case, and it's a very strong case that has to be made for a reconsideration of the whole question of the relative importance of learning to read and write and do arithmetic in primary education. Uh, physiologists and psychologists are coming to believe that the sense organs and connected nerve and motor apparatus of the child are not at this period best adapted uh, to the analytic work of learning to read and write. And he carries on and on and on making this case, which by the time of our hypothetical conspiracy meeting in 1962 is very, very well established already. And uh, he goes on by, listen to this part, um, it's all wrong to require a child to turn away from the rich material which is all about him. In other words, daydreaming, looking around the room, playing with toys, to which he spontaneously attends, and which is his natural, unconscious food, is to compel the premature use of analytic and abstract powers. It is willfully to deprive the child of that natural life and unconscious union with his environment, which is his birthright and privilege. There's every reason to suppose that a premature demand upon the abstract intellectual capacity stands in its way. It cripples the child rather than helps him. We must trust modern developments in physiology and psychology to make these matters clear so all the school authorities, as well as public opinion which controls them, shall have no option but to agree with us. And so uh, on it goes. Uh, what's, what's the purpose? What's the idea of all of this? Well, you see, <laughs> uh, first of all, can we agree that they've succeeded beyond their wildest dreams? Today, 
would it not be fair to say that a frighteningly large number of children that come out of let alone elementary, well, elementary school, even high school, are functionally illiterate? John Dewey has won. Now, he would have said at the time, if you would have challenged him, and uh, had he been an, a guest on this show, I would have challenged him, and he would have said, no, 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 I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't learn to read and write and do arithmetic. It should be postponed to high school. Uh, it's just not the right time for it. Well, as I think anybody knows, uh, by the time you reach high school, habits are very firmly entrenched already, and a parent shall we say, for instance, who waits till high school before teaching the child the meaning of the word no or teaching the child discipline uh, is doomed. It's, it's completely hopeless. It's too late. So, but you say, well, but why? Why would they do this? Rabbi Lappin, aren't you a little paranoid? Fine, John Dewey was wrong. Clearly, horribly, awfully, hideously wrong. But deliberate? What on earth was he trying to achieve? Well, I'll tell you. It's very simple. What he was trying to achieve is that the population, uh, that children should grow up uh, to turn to their betters, to their uh, superiors, for guidance on all current events. And just watching, as I'm sure you sometimes do as well, when some of these entertainment shows sends out a, a camera onto the sidewalk and asks people basic questions. Uh, let's even assume that, naturally, there's a certain amount of cherry-picking there and that the people who answered intelligently and accurately would, would drop from the program. Let's even assume but that they were even able to find that number of people who answer so foolishly and so ignorantly, that suggests that John Dewey has won, absolutely won. Um, what is the purpose and what's the idea? The idea is that uh, people will get their views and their outlooks from their superiors. One of the things you've noticed about uh, secular fundamentalism, about liberalism, about socialism, is a tremendous arrogance on the part of the nomenclatura, tremendous arrogance on the part of the bosses, the bureaucrats, the leaders, the heads, and uh, a sense that ordinary people can't handle it by themselves. The entire Obamacare medical program, uh, the, the notion that people should have any input on this was dismissed as, as humorous. Uh, and if you understand that they had absolutely no intention of shaping this in accordance with the wishes of ordinary citizens, then a lot of it makes sense. But that, that is absolutely correct. That is part of it. You do not want an educated citizenry. So, Lappin, are you telling me that John Dewey and the entire educational establishment sabotages children? Well, they don't see it as sabotaging. They see it as helping those children. And this is why it is that you will get all kinds of screams of outrage and indignation when we hear that Silicon Valley is, is requiring you know, 500 more Indian scientists, mathematicians, technologists, computer people, where, where is the equivalent outrage against the educational establishment? Why don't people say, what? 
Silicon Valley needs 500 scientists for great jobs and can't find them anywhere else but outside the United States of America. What does this say about our educational system? <laughs> what it says is they won. They got exactly what they wanted. I'll explain more when we get back. But first of all, uh, the website is, as I think you know, uh, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, please head over there. Uh, what I draw your attention to today is a uh, download of a, an extremely valuable resource, a very valuable resource. It really is. And um, uh, it, it, the, the cost is trivial, by the way. It's $5. Uh, it, it's a program called The Perils of Profanity. Okay? You are what you speak. And uh, it's specifically to combat a whole lot of the stuff we're talking about. Uh, there's more, as you'll see. But the, the principles of uh, The Perils of Profanity are what you speak is that in many cases, uh, falling back on profanity is the crutch made necessary by inadequate education. You follow what I mean? Uh, it is incredibly frustrating for human beings to be incapable of communicating. And you'll find little ch I mean, this is a well-established thing. Everyone knows this already, that little children who have difficulty communicating resort to violence, particularly boys, uh, because the, the desire and the urge is so strong to be able to communicate and express yourself. Well, if you're an adult and you can't, and you're not going to resort to violence as the crutch, uh, you resort to profanity, obscenity, vulgarity, and uh, and these come easily to, to the lips, and uh, so they uh, become part of your being. Uh, there are enormous dangers associated with that, which I go into, and I also go into how to cure yourself and get past some of these problems and uh, increase, dramatically increase your own ability to eloquently and articulately express yourself. It's tremendously important for, uh, for everything having, I mean, your economic life, your social life, everything hinges on your ability to communicate. Back with you in just one moment here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Don't go anywhere at all. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. If you're in the market for a new mattress, casper.com slash rabbi should be the next website you visit. Casper created an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's one perfect mattress, and it's sold directly to you, eliminating the need to endure one of those commission salesman mattress stores with inflated prices. Casper is shipped for free right to your door, astonishingly delivered in a sleek, how did it fit in there box. You just let it unfold, and there you have it, one of the most supportive sleep surfaces ever designed, hassle-free. Casper is made in America, and Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights free, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash rabbi. That's casper.com, promo code rabbi. Terms and conditions apply. casper.com slash rabbi.
Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you so much for being part of the show. And uh, thank you for all that you've done in bringing it to the attention of a wider circle of people. The, the show's audience continues to grow, and your role in making that happen is, is not only paramount, but also uh, very much appreciated by me. So uh, thanks a lot. Please go ahead and uh, keep doing that. People whom you're friendly with, who, who you think uh, would enjoy the show, if you do, uh, please pass it on to them. Let them uh, listen as well. And through the uh, increase in the number of listeners, uh, I find myself stimulated uh, to deliver absolutely the best possible show I can. So, uh, so here we are, uh, John Dewey, and his ideas are basically, yes, we must um, make the child less capable of determining uh, reality and truth for itself. We've got to make the child more dependent upon its superiors, in this case, its teachers. And uh, for this reason, one of the ideas that Dewey, Dewey promoted was uh, whole uh, language reading. Now, uh, what this means in a nutshell, I'm sure many of you are very familiar with this. If you've had children that have gone through public school system, you're probably aware of this. But um, since time immemorial... Uh, parents taught children to read at home, right? Invariably, if you look at, at early American history, look at the Northwest Ordinance and the educational requirements and, and concerns, everybody knew that mothers and fathers taught their kids to read. When children came to school, they could read already. How did mothers and fathers teach children to read? Well, uh, very simply, cat spells cat. That's right. It's as simple as that. Uh, in other words, phonetically. Are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. You know, the word thoroughly uh, with a, a G-H in the, in the middle of it. Sure. But by and large, if you teach a child that a C is a K and a T is a T and an A is an A, you've taught the child to be able to read the word cat. It's very exciting. And you go on from there and uh, little by little remarkably quickly, the child, as long as you do it early. And I'm sure, you know, if you've, for work reasons or, or pleasure reasons, have ever had to or desired to learn another language, I'm sure you know how terribly hard it is to learn a language the older you are. But children pick up languages all the time. Children in, in Europe, particularly Switzerland, but also other places, grow up multilingual. No problem. It's easy. Easy. Um, lots of Jewish children grow up speaking English and Hebrew very, very comfortably. But it will be a lot harder to do this later on. In the same way, uh, Dewey's idea that we don't teach children literacy, we don't teach them how to read, uh, obviously ensures that the likelihood of them ever being really good at written communication is dramatically diminished. Um, what did they come up with as the solution? Well, they didn't want a system whereby 
any mother or any father could teach a child to read because that would diminish the esoteric role of the teacher trained and licensed by the state to communicate knowledge to your child. After all, if you can teach your child to read, why should a teacher be paid a whole lot of money? Why should teachers have the authority they do? And so they came up with the idea of teaching children to read, and this is, again, all the way back to Dewey and eagerly retained by the educational establishment, uh, teaching children to read by recognizing the whole word. See, that word spells cat. Now, the problem, of course, is that um, there is no way that if you teach a child to recognize C-A-T as cat, no cat, no just immediately flashcards, there's the word, that's cat, you don't help the child read the word catheter because a child who this year reads cat uh, can next year learn that T-H is th and then can read the word catheter even if they don't know what it means. But when you're taught the whole language way of reading, if the teacher hasn't held up a card with the word catheter on it, you don't know it. You can't read it. It's the weirdest thing in the whole world, and I just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that many of you were educated in that way at school, or you have children who were educated in that way. Uh, it's a disaster, and the state of California acknowledged um, back in the 90s, or was it already in the 1000s, the 2000s, uh, acknowledged that this was causing major problems of illiteracy. It was really not good at all. But still, uh, it continued. All right, carried on. Uh, the Dewey I'm going to say goodbye to and leave him for now, as soon as I just mention that you have to know that Dewey thoughtlessly, I'll grant you, he didn't, he may not necessarily have, have designed to do this, but he did destroy the only form of education by which even mediocre teachers dealing with mediocre students could possibly contribute to the, the sum of human happiness, namely education by rote learning, right? You've got to do that, and we always did that. That was what education used to be. It wasn't a case of whether the child was interested or not interested or whether the child understood it or didn't understand it. You learned to recite poetry whether you liked it or not. You had to memorize. You had to learn the alphabet. You had to learn the multiplication table, right? All of those things. And the end result was, and again, you know, there are many people who, there are older folks today who say, uh, I would never support private schools because I was educated in the New York public schools and I'm very grateful for the education they gave me. Yeah, because way back, before they had completely adopted modern approaches to education from Dewey and then later on, by the way, I've spoken about this in an earlier podcast, the Frankfurt School. Folks who came over from Frankfurt University around about the time of just before World War II and brought with them uh, these ideas in, in practical form. And that was the end. But uh, yes, it's true that in the first half of the 20th century, many people did get wonderful educations from public schools. But now that isn't the case. And now, even with the current conditions, children could still come out knowing something with an education and an ability to further their own interests by means of reading, provided they were taught to read properly. But no. Now, 
the uh, oh, here's another thing, by the way, that Dewey was very big on. Again, I would say that schools, and you may not agree with this, but think about it, and uh, you'll come to see it's very true. Schools would be doing their students an enormous favor if they taught them the authority of teachers and the value of submitting to that authority. Because that's part of what education is. If you don't recognize the person who's teaching you as superior to you, why on earth would you go to the trouble of learning from that person? But uh, teachers have been, the, the more we pay them, the more devalued they become in society or certainly in the eyes of their students. Again, this is part of the Dewey erosion of objectivity and truth, and certainly of objective truth. Um, he, uh, Dewey uh, got rid of uh, rote learning, got rid of submission to the authority of teachers, and he encouraged all American schools to think of education as the release of a child's potential through creative and experimental methods. In other words, to think and act as though all teachers were wonderfully dedicated professors and all students were wonderfully dedicated human beings eager to gain an education. Well, the chaos of American education owes quite a debt of gratitude to John Dewey, I can tell you that. And uh, you know, Dewey eventually passed on, but his ideas remained enormously influential. To so much so, and I, I want to read you something from a, a guy called Professor Anthony Ettinger, uh, who, is, um, uh, who was chairman of the Center for Information Policy at Harvard University. I've got a speech of his from uh, 1981. So as late as 81, still here, listen to this. It's hard to believe, but I'm, I'm reading it verbatim. Our idea of literacy, I'm afraid, is obsolete because it rests on a frozen and classical definition. Literacy as we know it today is the product of the conditions of the industrial revolution, of urbanization. But as much as we might think it is, literacy is not an eternal phenomenon. Today's literacy is a phenomenon that has its roots in the 19th century. One does not have to reach much further back to think of civilizations with different concepts of literacy. Uh, based, for example, on oral rather than written traditions. Yeah, like in Africa, right, where there was no writing until missionaries came from England. Uh, that's what he's talking about, right? He's giving equal value to uh, African ideas of education as to Western ideas of education. And so uh, um, the present, I'm reading a bit more of his. Do we really want to teach people to do a lot of sums or write in a fine round hand when they have a $5 calculator or a word processor to work with? Or do we really have to have everybody literate, writing and reading in the traditional sense, when they have, we have the means through technology to achieve a new flowering of oral communication? I, I mean, only a PhD could be that dumb. Honestly, it's, how do you get away with this kind of thing? Well, not only does he get away with it, but it be, gets to be inflicted on children everywhere. And uh, the result is the chaos of education today. Uh, and what are we doing about it? Well, uh, right now, one of the things that's happening is in California, a bastion of 
chaotic education. Uh, they're trying to pass a law that senior teachers do not have to pay tax. In other words, it's a way of giving a teachers a raise without actually having to give them a raise. Teachers don't have to pay tax. Will Sacramento pass this in California soon? I don't know, but I'm going to keep watching and I'll let you know. But it looks like an extremely serious uh, program. And, uh, you know, teachers unions, that's, that's been the, the problem all along. Has the concern ever been students and the welfare of children? No, of course not. That's one of the reasons that teachers' unions have meticulously and relentlessly resisted um, uh, compensation based on results. And it was the idea that teachers who do, that do a great job and actually educate children should get be paid, by, paid better than p teachers who don't. No, nothing like that at all. Uh, teachers are paid on seniority. And firing, can you fire bad teachers? No. Um, last in, first out is the, uh, is the rule. And the, the lie that is maintained by unions and their uh, allies, politicians who, uh, who are bribed by the teachers' unions, the lie is we have to attract teachers to the profession. The truth is there's a glut of teachers on the market. They're just too many. That's why the teachers are being let go. There is no shortage of teachers. One of the reasons, by the way, that um, uh, teachers pay, which is none too bad, by the way, on an hourly basis, I can tell you, but uh, one of the reasons that, uh, that teachers pay is where it is and that the unions have to force um, school districts to raise, normally the, mar the market would do it, right? The market doesn't do it because so many people are flocking to become teachers. It's not a bad deal at all. People are moving, lots and lots of people want to become teachers, uh, but um, they would be a little less inclined to flock to the profession um, if the standards were maintained. But that, of course, is uh, not going to happen in the foreseeable future. So so there we've got our hypothetical uh, conspiracy going on, shall we say, 1962. And they say, well, one of the things we've got to do is make sure that children grow up incapable of educating themselves, uh, incapable of forming their own opinions, incapable of understanding what's going on. My people are destroyed for a lack of education. Uh, Book of Hosea, exactly right. So that's one of the things we do. We try and come up with ways to undermine education. And a way to do it is to get teachers on our side to make their financial welfare contingent on their joining our agenda. Okay, great. We got it. We do it. And then we've got to do the same thing with universities. We've got to take universities and strip away the concepts of classical education and replace them with nonsense education. Is it any wonder that it is difficult to find American scientists, mathematicians, engineers, programmers, and that Silicon Valley has to hire from India? Makes perfect sense to me. But who are these people? who are, are plotting and strategizing and conspiring to do this to America. Who are they? Look, um, it's very tempting to see uh, this thing happening, to see it as the result of a conspiracy. So much so that somebody who was by no means a fool 
uh, a guy called Professor Carol Quigley, and he was a professor at Georgetown University. Uh, he came up with a book. It's 800 pages. I've read it, uh, and I, I have it. No, it's not 800 pages. I'm looking at it. It's 1,300 pages. <laughs> it's honestly, it's called Tragedy and Hope by Dr. Carol Quigley, and um, he taught at the Foreign Service School at Georgetown University. Um, and so he also you know, came up with this idea of there's got to be a conspiracy. There's got to be people who are making all this happen because it is impossible that it's just happening randomly by accident. I mean, how can so much destructive policy win favor in the greatest country on earth and re just remorselessly drag it down to mediocrity and ultimately oblivion? How could that happen other than by devious, strategic calculation by hidden powerful forces. That's surely the only way. How's about the Jews? What about the protocols of the elders of Zion? Well, I'll tell you about that uh, just as soon as we get back. But first of all, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, but you know that already. And, uh, you probably tire of me reminding you, but hey, that's the deal, right? I do the podcast. You visit my website. Uh, maybe you want to uh, write me something. Maybe you want to make sure you subscribe to our weekly emails, uh, thought tools, musings, ask the rabbi. Maybe you want to ask the rabbi a question. Uh, you know, from time to time, people ask me questions on LinkedIn uh, or on uh, Facebook uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, or on Twitter, people even ask me questions, Daniel, at Daniel Lappin. Uh, and I explained to, I, I certainly, I put up posts on these social media places, but when people ask me complicated questions, I'm really not going to answer them on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. That just isn't going to happen. Uh, I just don't have the time for that at all. But I do answer them on the website, and that's the place to take a look. And uh, take a look also at the resource called uh, the Perils of Profanity. The Perils of Profanity on my website. It's a one-hour program. Uh, you download it for $5, and you have then uh, on your iPad or on your phone or on your iPod, wherever you tend to keep this kind of information, something you can listen to uh, more than once, by the way, while you're exercising or walking the dog or doing anything, you know, commuting or driving, whatever. And... Uh, it will help you understand uh, how important it is to strengthen your ability to communicate and indeed just how to strengthen it and how to get rid of bad communication habits you might inadvertently have slipped into. All of that on a program called The Perils of Profanity over at rabbidaniellappin.com. See you there and see you back in a moment. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards. 
bullet, found a clump of them over by the fence line. Oh. Uh, so, you know, a good like, 60 or 70 feet of where she was being dragged off and clearly still fighting. I know. It makes me angry. I think it's got to be a fox. I'm sure it's a fox because they're the only thing small enough to be that sneaky. 40 Acres and a Fool on demand. New episodes posted every Saturday at noon Eastern on theblaze.com slash radio, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. That's right. And uh, one of the ways that the world really works is that um, human beings who are well-connected to other human beings are better off than human beings who are more isolated. And so, uh, you know, to give you an example, let us imagine that you are uh, somebody in your town. Let us say that you are on the PTA and you're on a, um, you're in, uh, shall we say, the Rotary Club. And you attend a monthly meeting of the, uh, the uh, directors of the, the local art gallery or the hospital or the orchestra or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is. Uh, you do see, do you not, that you are better off that, and your children are better off than the children or the person would be who basically stays home, you know, goes to work, comes home, watches TV, and goes and repeats it the next day, does not uh, put energy into connecting. Difference is that uh, when you need something, or your children need something, or a friend of yours needs something, which is a way of, you know, you, you build up um, a certain currency in favors, you know, not not maliciously, but just through the natural order of things, uh, because what happens is that when somebody comes to you and uh, and says, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to reach such and such a person, or I'm, you know, your answer is, oh, you know, I know him, I I see him at uh, board meetings every two weeks, and but could you introduce me? Yeah, you know, I can introduce you. Sure. What do you want to do? And so on and so forth. You see how that works. Um, Business-wise, same thing, right? Uh, a lot of business takes place between people who know one another from church or synagogue or from Rotary or from wherever it is. Even though you may well not do any business at those places, that doesn't matter. But uh, when you are looking for uh, a recruiting company because you're looking to hire some, some new people... Uh, and it turns out that a guy you see every Wednesday lunchtime at Rotary Club happens to have a recruiting company. Who do you think you call? And uh, and so it goes. Connections are valuable. And so in the same way that on a small scale, um, you know, you you know maybe you maybe you go to a car club meeting once a month or whatever your interests are. But the more of these things you build into your life the better off you are socially, financially, in every possible way. And so, uh, as, as you can imagine, on larger scales, the same thing happens. So, for instance, um, there was a club that was formed in 1954 called the Bilderbergers Club. All right. 
Now, you will have heard all kinds of ominous things, I'm sure. The Bilderbergers are planning this and the Bilderbergers are planning that. Uh, the Bilderbergers are a group of, of movers and shakers. They were people influential in, in, in one way or another. By the way, how do you get to be influential? By connecting with as many other people as possible. The more people you know and the more people are in your group, as it were, the more influential you are and the more influential you are seen to be. So uh, the Bilderbergers started in 1954. They met at uh, a place called the Hotel Bilderberger in the Netherlands, and, um, and folks came from different countries, and over the years it's continued. Do you want to know what a modern-day equivalent of it is? The Davos gathering. Every year in Switzerland, it always makes the papers, right? Every year in Switzerland, there's a, a group of movers and shakers that get together, and they're celebrities, and they're uh, business people, and they're politicians, and they go there not deliberately to control the world. They go there to have a good time. They go there to enjoy a luxurious few days in the company of people they consider to be their equals or their superiors, uh, and they enjoy a luxurious and stimulating time. So they go to divorce in exactly the same way that if I was invited, I'd go, of course, you see. But um, is divorce controlling the world? Well, no more than the Bilderbergers. Well, are the Bilderbergers controlling? Well, not, not really. It's just that people might say, let's imagine in your town, uh, you are uh, a member of your car club and a member of Rotary, and you're on the PTA, and you're on the board of uh, the uh, hospital, and you're on the uh, Boy Scouts committee. Let's say you're on all of those things, okay? And um, it so happens that when somebody wants to run for mayor of the town, you are one of the people he comes to talk to because a lot of people know you. And whoever he talks to, people say, oh, you know what? You need to talk to John Smith. That's you. And pretty soon a guy comes to you and says, uh, I'm hoping to run for mayor and I hope you'll support me. Yeah, you talk to him. You chat for a while. You like him. Fine. Okay. What does that mean? Well, uh, since you know a lot of people, you probably have a few dollars because the linkage between having a few dollars and knowing lots and lots and lots of people is a very strong, important point. By the way, more on that in my set on my website called The Income Abundance Set. All right, uh, three CDs, two books, and there's a lot there. One of the, um, um, one of the uh, CDs is a two-hour audio program. Uh, prosperity power based very, very much on understanding this linkage between connections with people and how it translates into money. So anyway, this candidate comes, talks to you, uh, he gets your support, you like him, so it ends up you give him a few dollars, but that's not all you do. You, you give him the names of a few of your friends that maybe you do business with or you know, whatever it is, and uh, you, you say, listen, go talk to them, use my name. Pretty soon, the guy gets to win the election, becomes mayor. Who do you think is his big buddy? Who do you think he talks to when issues crop up? That would be you. And so folks might then start saying, hey, does John Smith, like, run this town? Is, like, does John Smith shape everything that goes on here? And the answer is, you know, that you have a life. 
right? You've got a family, you've got children, whatever it is, you've got, you, you're not exactly in the running the world business, you're not even in running the town business, but as a concerned citizen, and you're, you're well invested in your community, you are interested in what's going on. And so people might well say, hey, is he running things around here? Well, not really, but you are more influential than most people, and you are better connected than most people, right? That's certainly true. And so that's really how it is with the, the Bilderbergers, and it's how it is with the divorced people, and it's how it is with many other uh, high-level groups that get together and meet on a regular basis. Uh, those connections are really valuable, and they really do translate into a certain degree of influence, power, and money. They do. Uh, this You don't have to stick with the 20th or the 21st century for this. Uh, you can go all the way back to the uh, 18th century. There's a group called the Illuminati. Now, I could do an entire show on the Illuminati because they, they were an important group. Uh, I'm not going to do that right now. But there it was back in May 1776. Adam Weishaupt in Germany uh, started the Illuminati. Again, secret society with plans to do this or that to the world. Um, yes and no, but you see, what I'm about to try and show you is that in order to understand what's going on, you don't need a secret society. You don't need a cellar full of conspirators trying to figure out how to ruin the country or destroy the world or whatever it is, or or gain supreme power and control of all the world. Um, and bankers, by the way, yes, bankers are very much a part of that and seem to be a part of that uh, because the combination of money and connection does make them influential. There's no question about it. Now, once upon a time when bankers came from many different persuasions, some were conservative, some were liberal, some were uh, Jewish, some were Christian, there were all kinds of people. So you didn't ever then have the tendency to say, hey, are the bankers running the world? But um, when it turns to be, uh, when it becomes a more monolithic kind of group, at that point where everyone in the group is trying to do the same thing and move in the same direction and has the same political outlook, well, now you might well say, hey, are the bankers running the world? And Again, they've got lives. It's not that they're trying to run the world, but they are trying to further their own ends, just like you and I are. And because of their connections and because of uh, the, the money tied to the connections, they are uh, well-equipped to be able to shape political ends for their own purposes, obviously. But uh, secret societies with, uh, with hidden plans not so much, really. Uh, all that having been said, it's important to understand that it really does look that way. Uh, I, I fully agree. It really looks that way. For instance, um, how hard is it? You know, how many years of formal education <laughs> at a kindergarten or a GIC, a government indoctrination camp, would you, when I say kindergarten, I mean what most people call universities and colleges, uh, but how many years of education at high school or college or GICs or kindergartens would you need 
In order to understand what I'm about to say, get ready. Put on your thinking cap, because this is hard, my friends. I'm going to be taxing your intellectual powers to the full here. Are you ready? Okay. Any country that encourages open immigration, including from places that do not share your culture, and at the same time you also are committed to having a welfare society, well, that's not going to work. You're doomed. It's unsustainable. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it'll be the next day. But somewhere down the road, when you're giving out the money from those citizens who are working to those who are not, and at the same time, you're welcoming open doors to people from the MENA countries, M-E-N-A, Middle East, North Africa. I was just going to say generally, but let me be specific. Uh, you have a problem. Now, you get that, right? And it's not necessarily because you have an advanced degree. You get what I just said. But how come the government of Trudeau in Canada doesn't get it? A welfare society and open borders. How is it that the government of Germany under Angela Merkel doesn't get it? How about Sweden doesn't get it? How do you explain that? Doesn't it begin to look like some sort of conspiracy that all of these people went to the same conspiratorial meeting in that dark cellar somewhere, and they all said, let's destroy Canada and Germany and France and Sweden and Norway by bringing in lots of people and at the same time uh, constantly elevating the welfare package that we're making available? It really does look, does it not, as if there was some kind of conspiracy there. To because how could people be so stupid? How clever do you have to be? How educated do you have to be to see that full welfare and open borders, non-sustainable, can't happen, right? Simple arithmetic. Ah, but wait, yes. <laughs> John Dewey destroyed the ability of people to be able to do arithmetic. That's right. Well, we have a problem here. And uh, one of the best conspiracies is a book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, uh, pretending to be, and again, let me just stress, it really is a hoax. Believe me, uh, I, um, <laughs> I, would, I would absolutely uh, tell you the truth on this. And uh, as you know, I, I'm not shy or diffident about speaking the truth, even when it is about uh, my own religion, people of my own faith. Uh, but in this case, the, the, um, uh, the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was a hoax uh, concocted in Russia around about the turn of the century, late, like 18, late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, it did a lot of damage. And, and basically, the only part of the world today in which it has credence and which it is published and regularly printed and put out and, and people buy it, is in the Muslim world, mostly uh, the Arab Muslim world. That's where it is. Uh, but I will tell you that by the time I have finished telling you a few things from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion when we come back, you are not going to be sure whether you believe me that it's a hoax, because it's going to look as if everything they planned in this ostensible description. Okay, it's the minutes of the kind of meeting I've been joking about, right? 
This is the minutes of a group of Jews plotting to destroy America, right, in the early uh, 20th century. You're going to look around you and say, yeah, I guess this really did happen, because how else otherwise could all these things have possibly come to pass? All right. Uh, the uh, two products I mentioned, I mentioned the um, fantastic product called the Income Abundance Package. Uh, I mean, those of you who are familiar with my work in this area need no introduction to it. Basically, you or anybody in your circle who is desperately in need of a major financial makeover, somebody who is also committed to changing their financial destiny, um, it's as simple as that. You need the income abundance set. Go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and take a look at it. Read up about it and just get it. Uh, but for everyone else, what I'm talking about is something called the perils of profanity. Uh, I'm sure you can ask yourself whether you are paying as much attention to uh, being as uh, effective a communicator as you could be. How about uh, people in your family? Uh, are they all communicating as well as they could be? The uh, audio download is only five bucks. It's called The Perils of Profanity. The Perils of Profanity. Uh, you are what you speak. And, and sure enough, your, uh, your social life, even your romantic life, and certainly your financial life have a great deal to do with how you communicate. All of that on RabbiDanielLappin.com, where you also need to make sure you are on the mailing list. And we'll be back in just a moment with Taram Taram, the protocols of the elders of Zion. That's right. Don't go away. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome back, everybody. And uh, let's take a look again at what are some of the things you would do if you had been setting up a subversive group in a dark cellar in 1962 uh, determined to undermine the United States of America. Well, we spoke about uh, limiting education, making it tough for children to become independently minded uh, thinking people and uh, turning them into uh, uh, almost automatons in a sense. Uh, creatures that will regurgitate the whatever are the cultural norms of the day. Uh, I think we would obviously do the same thing to, to universities. I think what we would do is also uh, subvert entertainment and morality. Um, we'd spread, we, we'd encourage the spread of pornography. We'd lower the quality of entertainment to the point where it appeals to the most uh, prurient, and uh, and uh, most unelevated parts of the the human being, uh, everything designed to lower the morality and hence the morale of the the target people that you're going for. Um, 
we would uh, try and uh, encourage people to view government as the authority and to uh, suppress any tendency to question or challenge government. All of these things uh, are things that, as you can see, have been done extensively in Europe and uh, unfortunately have been moving this way in the United States of America. Um, you would win people's support for your agenda by promising them stuff. Well, we've certainly seen plenty of that going on. And uh, I said I would tell you about the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is, um, as I say, a publication that um, was long ago established as a hoax. But nonetheless, it continues to be a big seller in the Arab world and uh, uh, all, all the finest anti-Semitic bookstores um, still stock it and, and try and uh, maintain it to be an authentic account of the minutes of various meetings held by the elders of Zion. Um, well, I'll tell you one of the, the very first and most compelling indications that it is a complete uh, hoax is that it makes absolutely no distinction between uh, religious, uh, Torah-observing, God-fearing Jews and secular Jews who have long since abandoned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, that would be a mistake because th there has always been uh, an unbridgeable gulf between those two groups of Jews. And, um, and as a matter of fact, uh, considerable hostility uh, generally from the secular towards the religious. It's, it's not a, a calm situation, and there are really only very few times and very few topics uh, that tends to, to bring Jews together uh, on those fronts. But even Israel doesn't, as I'm sure you know, uh, by far and away the majority of secularized Jews are not supporters of Israel, even at uh, the, the current time of, of great peril. And so the book, failing to make that distinction, uh, reveals itself to be a forgery because there is no way uh, all of these Jews would sort of sit down in this meeting you know, and, and talk and plot and plan. But anyway, I'll give you a little bit of an idea of what they come up with. Um, uh, they speak about fooling and bemusing and corrupting the youth of the Gentiles by rearing them in principles and theories which are known to us to be false, although it is by us that they have been inculcated. Um, and again, you know, uh, what's, what's a bit awkward about it is that uh, you look around and, and you say, yes, it, it is, to some extent, it is true. Um, the, many of the pernicious ideas that have captured the hearts of students uh, since, uh, since the 1950s and 60s um, have been ideas promulgated by Jewish communists, Jewish socialists. Uh, Noam Chomsky is, is Jewish. Um, uh, Saul Alinsky, who wrote Rules for Radicals, is Jewish. So, you know, somebody reading this book and saying, hmm, yes, I think so. Uh, this makes a lot of sense. Well, <laughs> um, it does, but... The point of today's podcast is that you don't actually need a conspiracy for behavior that looks conspiratorial to emerge. Uh, what I mean by that is that uh, I might be driving down the, uh, the freeway on the way to a meeting, 
when all of a sudden the traffic slows down and I can see I'm going to be horribly late for the meeting and I'm so frustrated by it. And what's caused it all? There's an accident on the other side of the road. That's all. And uh, everybody's rubbernecking to take a look at what, what's going on and they're going slow. But there's no other objective reason for a traffic slowdown on my side of the freeway. And uh, I could well make the mistake of saying, you know, all these drivers, every single one of them, uh, got together in a cellar and plotted conspiratorially to make Lappin late for his meeting tomorrow morning. They all got together last night and figured this out. Well, it sure looks that way, but that's not the only answer or the only explanation for what we're witnessing. The other answer is that uh, human nature is such that uh, if you see uh, an accident and there's something gory and uh, people are going to slow down to take a look, that's unfortunately what we do, for better or for worse, that's what we do. And so that is a more logical explanation for the uh, events we see transpiring before us rather than assuming that everyone met and got together in a cellar to plot um, and to plan. Um, here's some more. Uh, this one is in protocol number uh, protocol number ten. Okay. Um, uh, we must teach even the smallest units of members of the human race to vote by means of meetings and agreements by groups, and um, then we'll be able to seize power. Well, don't we have that in, today, where? Um, entire groups of people utterly predictably voted for uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, you, you know exactly in 2016, who, you just spoke to somebody and found out what group they were in, and you knew what they were. I mean, that's how voting takes place already. So you say to yourself, yeah, hmm, that's exactly what the protocols plan to do. Look how successfully they've pulled it off. Um, they say... Uh, Um, we, we shall destroy among the Gentiles the importance of the family and its educational values and remove the possibility of individuals splitting off. For the mob, handled by us, will not let themselves, uh, not that, will not let them come to the front nor even give them a hearing. It is a custom to listen to us only who pay for obedience and attention. We, in this way, we will create a blind, mighty force which will never be in a position to move in any direction without the guidance of our agents set at its head by us as leaders of the mob. The people will submit to this regime because it will know that upon these leaders will depend its earnings, its gratifications, and the receipt of all kinds of benefits. Again, you know, I look at that uh, and I say, yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's terrible. Uh, here's from protocol number 12. The word freedom, which can be interpreted in various ways, we must define as freedom is the right to do that which the law allows. Got it? Now, that's not really our American definition of freedom at all. But it is the freedom that the <laughs> Protocols of Elders of Zion says that this conspiratorial group uh, decided to define freedom in that fashion, which makes a lot of sense. Again, from their point of view, as you want to uh, bring down a culture in a society, you do want to make it very subservient to government because you're going to be the ones running that government. Uh, then we've got, um, how about this? Uh, okay, so now we've contrived 
to possess ourselves of the minds of the community to such an extent that they all come near looking upon the events of the world through the colored glasses of those spectacles we are setting astride their noses. Amazing. Amazing. That's right. So the depiction of news, right? People, you know, the majority of people in the United States of America, from where do they know what's going on? And who controls that? Well, the same conspiratorial group, right? Excepting, as I'm going to show you, it doesn't require a conspiratorial meeting to make a whole lot of people move in the same direction and to behave in, uh, in, in predictable ways. Um, I spoke earlier about sort of corrupting the culture. So in Protocol 14, they say, in countries known as progressive and enlightened, we create a senseless, filthy, abominable literature and entertainment. For some time after our entrance to power, we shall continue to encourage its existence in order to provide a telling relief by contrast to the speeches of our party program, which will be distributed from our headquarters. Okay, um, I'll just give you a, a, a couple, a couple more, so as you, you see what's going on here. Protocol number sixteen: emasculation of the universities, substitute for classicism. In order to effect the destruction of all collective forces except ours, we shall emasculate the first stage of collectivism, the universities, by re-educating them in a new direction. Their officials and professors will be prepared for their business by detailed secret programs of action from which they will not with immunity diverge, not by one iota. They will be appointed with a special precaution and will be so placed as to be wholly dependent upon the government. Is that, I ask you, I mean, is that or is that not an accurate description of American kindergartens, universities today? Honestly. Uh, uh, and here, you know, we've spoken about how in the past I've explained how uh, the left has abolished the study of American history. And all people read about now is the evils done to the Indians and the evils done uh, to, to any other group and the evils done by Christopher Columbus. And that's all students here today. Today you, you, you pick a young child out of a school where 50 years ago that same child would have had an extensive knowledge of American history and, well, listen to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, number 16. Classicism, as also any form of study of ancient history in which there are more bad than good examples, we shall replace with the study of the program of the future. We shall erase from the memory of men all facts of previous centuries which are undesirable to us and leave only those which depict all the errors of the governments of the past. The study, the study of practical life, of the obligations of order, of the relations of people one to another, of avoiding bad and selfish examples, etc., etc., but basically taking charge of the study of history uh, to make it absolutely out of reach that people do not know where they came from. We destroy their past, and then we learn to, through that we can control their future. Uh, protocol number 20, financial program. Progressive tax, progressive taxation, interest-bearing papers, stagnation of currency, uh, 
Today we shall touch upon the financial program, which I have put off to the end of my report as being the most difficult, the crowning, and the decisive point of our plans. Before entering upon it, I will remind you that I have already spoken before by way of a hint when I said that the sum total of our actions is settled by the question of figures. And, uh, and on they go about uh, uh, making people more and more dependent on government by taxing them so as we reduce their independence and, uh, and increasing government services so they start falling into a state of dependency. And again, you, you look at that and you say, well, yeah, I, I guess they pulled that off. Um, um, okay, here's a bit more of that same, of that same protocol. Uh, we will guarantee the peace for the sake of which things it is indispensable that the capitalists should yield up a portion of their incomes for the sake of the secure working of the state. State needs must be paid by those who will not feel the burden and to have enough to take from. And uh, perhaps just one more, although there's, there's really no shortage of this. Uh, you are aware that the gold standard has been the ruin of the states which have adopted it, for it has not been able to satisfy the demands for money, the more so that we have removed gold from circulation as far as possible. And, uh, you know, there again, we, we know that the removal of gold from the economy is essentially a license to print money on the part of government. And, uh, and so obviously the Protocols of the Elders of Zion speak of that and say uh, we, uh, the, we absolutely must remove any dependence, any relationship between the currency and gold uh, because that doing so gives us the freedom to do exactly as we choose. And so, so there it is. Um, there's any number of... Um, possible uh, culprits, right, for those who are controlling. I mean, George Soros, right, is he not influential? Sure he is, absolutely, uh, of course, by virtue of connections and money, very much so. Uh, is he running the show? Far from it. Uh, if he was, Hillary Clinton would have won the election in, uh, in 2016. So, no, but is he influential and powerful? Sure, without question. Is it a nefarious, baleful, destructive influence? Without question. And there we come to, to one of the problems. See, the problem is that uh, when there was a healthy diversification of interests and outlook, it, it didn't really matter if uh, people got together and formed influential groups, whether it was Bilderbergers or whether it's nowadays in Davos, Switzerland every year. But now, when every single person on that mountaintop in Davos, uh, whether he is a musician or an entertainment celebrity, whether she is a movie star or a banker or a politician, they all think the same way. And in an earlier show, I discussed a little bit about the role that universities have played in uh, making the elite all think exactly the same way. But where did the universities get it from? And so we uh, are able to see that the truth is that there is not any one particular group running uh, the affairs. It's not as if there's one hidden, secret, obscure group trying to become world-dominant. But uh, whether you go to the Bilderberger group or whether you go to uh, uh, any 
table at the Pier Hotel on a Monday morning in New York where businessmen from Wall Street are having breakfast, wherever you go, pretty much all the folks are going to be thinking the same way. What, what has caused this? What's the result of it? And the answer is the complete extirpation of Judeo-Christian biblical faith from Western civilization. And what that does is cause a complete uniformity of thinking as well as an intolerance for any departure from doctrine. A departure from doctrine, in other words, anybody who doesn't toe the liberal line, is considered to be a, a religious heretic. And the, the penalties uh, that are subsequently applied are, are penalties that, are, that can be draconian because that's what they believe this to be doing. Their entire picture of their own virtue is tied up with their political positions. Uh, their wisdom and their uh, balance and their intelligence is measured by their rejection of God and the Bible and faith. Um, their sense of morality and virtue is derived from their progressivism and their willingness to uh, increase taxation and to open the borders to, to uh, immigrants, even those who are um, have a very high probability of uh, being uh, likely to commit violence. All, it, all of that is part of this whole vision of virtue that flows out of the, uh, the secular mindset. A very scary uniformity of vision is the result of that secularism. And so whether it's in the university, whether it's in the uh, bureaucratic structure that has been assembled, and even, even to some extent uh, in um, institutions that we have a tendency to venerate, the military, for instance, there is no question that uh, part of the uh, higher echelons of the military were corrupted during the Clinton administration and uh, further on during the Obama ad administration. That's, there's, there's no doubt about that. And in, in all cases, uh, the corruption has always been in the same predictable direction. And so anybody can be completely forgiven for jumping to the conclusion that, yes, there is some kind of, uh, uh, of deep conspiracy. There are groups behind the scenes, shadowy individuals who are controlling things because the uniformity is so unlikely to be achieved by random accident. There must be such a group, right? And the truth is, there is it is no accident and there is no group. It is that uh, in the same way that it's not a coincidence that all the traffic in front of me stopped that morning, and neither is it a conspiracy. It's just a reality of human behavior. You, you see an accident, you slow down to take a look. In this case, uh, you become part of a secular worldview, and everything else falls into place from that. That determines the type of government, it det determines the freedoms, it determines the, uh, it even determines an attitude towards homosexuality. All of that clearly emerging from the most basic and fundamental decision. Right. And uh, I've spoken about it before in terms of uh, that basic question of where did human beings come from. 
And if you're going to start off with the basic presumption that human beings are here because of a lengthy process of unaided, random evolution, uh, then everything else flows from that point. And it's not a conspiracy, and it's, it's not a, uh, uh, any, any attempt by any identifiable group to take control. It is the natural unfolding of historic events in an utterly predictable fashion. Uh, when a, a nation reaches a, a point of this degree of, of uh, alienation from the cultural blueprint that not only held them together but brought them to greatness in the first place. And uh, that's as far as we can go. Um, I did actually also want to talk about, it's not going to happen in this show because we are out of time, but um, I do feel that uh, I, I have to talk about clarifying what are the barriers to happy marriage. And um, what I'm going to do is list 13 different differences that men and women have. So if, if you see an engaged couple, for instance, where there's a difference in race, right? The, the man is black and the woman is white, or the woman is uh, black and the man is white. Um, to, what to what extent would you consider that to be uh, an obstacle to a successful marriage? How important is that? So uh, race uh, is, uh, if the man is black and the woman is white or the other way around, how much of a problem would you consider that? How about if a man is from the upper class and a woman is from the, the, lower, uh, from the lower class? Or how about the other way around? How about if they're different religions? Um, how about uh, financial status, man hire, woman hire? How about uh, religious uh, commitment and fervor? What happens if they are of the same religion, but uh, one of them, is, shall we say, the man is much more religious and more committed and the woman is lesser or the other way around? How important or dangerous or problematic would those be? Uh, what about if uh, they don't match ambition-wise? Is that a problem? Well, it depends how. If the man is more ambitious, is that okay or is that a problem? If the woman is more ambitious, what's that like? Um, how about looks? This one is uh, surprising. When, when, when people think about it and answer me, uh, I get the most interesting responses. Um, how problematic is it if the woman is um, more attractive than the guy? How about the other way around? What happens? How do you feel about a couple where the guy is just much more attractive than the woman is? Um, so those are the things I'm going to talk about. Uh, they'll be coming up next week, I believe. But, uh, but meanwhile, you can sort of think about those and, uh, and, and contemplate as to which of them are more serious and more problematic than the others. Anyway, we will, we will touch on that and we will do that. Um, the uh, website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, that means, as you know, that it is time to say goodbye. And so um, please visit the website, uh, take a look at the uh, income abundance set for those of you for whom that is of interest. And uh, for everybody else, take a look at the uh, download of the perils of profanity. You are what you speak. The extent to which so much of our lives can be improved by improving our own ability to articulate ideas eloquently uh, to one another, how to work on that, how to get rid of bad habits, all of that is in that resource. I think 
without any input means it actually very useful indeed. Uh, which means that we are about as far as we can go for today's show. So uh, it is me, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you a fantastic week of good health and prosperity. God bless. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.